We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, and we shall read again from verse 8. Revelation, chapter 2, reading from verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead, and is alive. I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thy faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And uh, so on, and may the Lord again bless to us this uh, brief reading of his word. And we return to the seven churches here in Asia, representing seven different states spiritually that were found not just at that time in the church generally throughout Asia, uh, but the conditions that prevail in the church of Christ in every generation. And as we've stressed uh, all along, it is our wisdom to inquire as to what Christ, the living head of the church, knows about us. It is very easy to become complacent, to adopt the Pharisaical spirit whereby we compare ourselves with others. And we end up thinking, well, thank God we're not as others are. And we're able to think we're better because we have this or we have that or we've done this or we're doing that, and others are failing to do it. And therefore, we have much to be pleased with ourselves about. We have the emphasis to every church, I know thy works. I know everything that can possibly be known about every church in Asia and every assembly of my people. I know everything. There's nothing whatever hidden from me. Now, no one else can possibly say that. No one else can possibly make this claim, I know. And uh, it is our wisdom then to seek to inquire, well, what does he know? 
What does he know that perhaps we need to know? Now you think, what is the purpose in the writing of these epistles? Does it alter in any way, to any degree, what Christ knows? Of course it doesn't. Why then are these letters written? So that the churches might know what Christ knows. And that they might not just listen, but that they would lay it to heart. And that they would face the fact, this, whatever we think, whatever we imagine about ourselves, this is the truest picture of what we are. Now, you can imagine the church in Ephesus, perhaps at some particular meeting, a report is given on the activities of the church in Ephesus. And maybe the angel of the church reports This year we've done this. We've been involved in that. We've been seeking to serve Christ in this way and in that area and so on. And then they end up congratulating themselves. It's been a successful year. It's been a fruitful year. Look at all the things we've done. Look at all the the work we've been laboring at. We haven't been lazing around. We've been, we've been busy. And the Savior is able to say yes to the Ephesian church. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. I know all these things. It's all true. But there's something wrong. And you need to know behind everything else, there is something wrong. And I wonder, I wonder, if I were to intimate here from the pulpit, I want everyone in the congregation to sit down and think very seriously about how things are in this congregation here in Fitzroy Street in Grafton. And when you've honestly thought about everything and carefully analyzed everything, every aspect that you're capable of considering of the witness here, and then write it down, this is what I think is wrong with our congregation. And then they were all to be handed in next Lord's Day. And then we'd take them all before the Kirk session. This is what someone thinks is wrong with this congregation. This is what someone else thinks is wrong with it. This is what someone thinks we're falling down on. And then we were to 
analyze it all and present it all to the congregation, I wonder what we'd be really thinking at the end of it. Because the fact is, by our very nature, we do not readily and willingly admit to our feelings and our shortcomings and our sins. You take David, King David, as an example. He had committed terrible sin. But he didn't, as soon as he had committed it, go on his knees. You think the first night after he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, does his conscience smite him? And we read of David alone in the watches of the night, smiting on his breast, crying for mercy, wondering why did I do it? What happened to me? Nothing of that. God has to send Nathan. And even when Nathan comes and addresses David, he still doesn't see. And he still doesn't confess his sin. It's not in our nature to do it. It's in our nature to cover it, to hide it, to pretend it isn't there, to pretend it never happened, to pretend it doesn't exist. And it wasn't until Nathan said, David, thou art the man. Until that moment, David did not confess his sin. And my dear friend, the church hasn't really changed, collectively or individually. Does anyone think there might even be anything wrong in this congregation? Does anyone think there, there might just be something amiss? There might be something that needs remedying. Or do we think we're wonderful? And the Lord is pleased with us and smiling upon us. One thing we can be sure of, when the head of the church delivers his message to any of these churches, he is honest. That's one thing certain. And when it comes to the church in Samaria, and we've already noted some matters relating to the church there, and contrasted the church in Samaria to some degree with the church in Ephesus. And it is right and proper that we do compare ourselves and contrast ourselves with other churches. That's not a crime, that's not a sin. The sin comes in when we begin to boast about how better we are. We ought to be better. If there's a better church in Grafton than this church, there's something wrong with us.
That's the fact of it. This congregation ought to be the best church that anyone could associate with in this community. And if it isn't, then we need to examine ourselves. We don't have to boast if we do think we're sounder, we're more biblical, we're more orthodox. That's not anything to glory and we have to acknowledge, as Paul did, if we're anything at all, it is by the grace of God alone. But we ought to be different. And we ought to be able to see the difference and recognize the difference. That is not a sin to do that. The sin of the Pharisee was when he was thanking God, boastfully telling God, I do this, I do that, others don't do it, but I'm doing it. I thank God that he'll be pleased with me because of it. And here in the seven churches, we have contrasting conditions prevailing. We come to the church in Smyrna and we noted some of the things that the Savior had to say about the church and to the believers there. But I want to linger for a little, concentrating very particularly upon the exhortation of the head of the church to the church in Smyrna. Verse 10, be thou faithful. Now we did consider that to some degree. But I believe it's important that we know what is meant here. And as we consider then the church in Smyrna, we may, first of all, as should be obvious to us, consider Christ's knowledge of the church. Now we, of course, have stated he's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows everything about every church. What kind of knowledge is it? And then we may secondly consider Christ's uh, sympathy with the church. He says here, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and so on. I know your state and condition. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. And so on. And I will give thee a crown of life. Christ is sympathizing with the church here in Smyrna because it is faced with real difficulties. And the third thing that we may note is, as we've already mentioned, is exhortation to this church in Smyrna. Be thou faithful. No matter what happens, be faithful. Whatever others are doing or not doing, whatever they're doing in Ephesus or Philadelphia or Laodicea, whatever they're doing, 
you be faithful there in Samaria. And I will know whether you are faithful or not. And then the fourth thing is his glorious promise to the church. Be thy faithful. Overcome and I will give thee a crown of life. Now the knowledge that the Lord of glory has of the church in Smyrna is the knowledge not just of the head of the church and of the glorious Redeemer who loves that church, but it is the knowledge of a judge. It is in judgment that the Savior is speaking here to the churches. He has assessed their condition and their circumstances. And he says, I know. I know everything there is to be known. I know why it is. I know why the conditions are as they are. I know in Ephesus although there's no recognition of it, that those in Ephesus have left their first love. I know what's happening in their hearts. Whatever outwardly seems to continue as normal, I know what's happening in their hearts. I hope we appreciate that. He knows the very moment we begin to backslide. He knows the very reasons why our hearts begin to get cold. In the first epistle that Peter writes in the chapter 4, in the uh, verse 17, Peter is writing to the scattered believers uh, throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, the seven churches in Asia is what we're dealing with. Here's Peter writing to those who are scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So here's a message from Peter Likewise, to the seven churches that are scattered throughout Asia. What does Peter have to say to the churches and to the believers scattered throughout Asia? Well, he says, judgment must begin at the house of God. He says, the time is come. That judgment must begin at the house of God. It is time for the church to analyze its state and condition, to look carefully and seriously at itself. It is time to make judgment. It is time to face reality. It is time, the time that has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. 
Ah, what would many today think? Ah, it's time, the time has come when judgment must begin in the Houses of Parliament. The time has come when judgment must begin with those who have the rule over us and those who legislate for us. To those who are scattered in Asia, the churches in Asia, the seven churches in Asia, the time has come that judgment must begin in the churches in Asia. And Peter says, if it first begin with us, if God judges the life and the conduct and the behavior and the witness of his own dearly beloved redeemed people, what shall be the judgment of the ungodly? What shall be the end of them? What shall be the end of them? Oh, man and woman live for today only. They don't want to think of tomorrow. They don't want to think of the end. They don't even want to think there is any end. If the glorious head of the church will judge his own people, he'll examine them, he'll examine the church. He will expose their sins, he will call for their repentance, he will chastise them and rebuke them, even move, remove the candlestick out of its place if necessary. He will deal severely when required. If this is how he's going to deal with the church, what is to be the end of the ungodly when he deals with them in his wrath? Now, when we come to Revelation, the church in Samaria, it's one of the churches in Asia, and judgment, the time has come. Churches have been established. The apostolic ministry is basically at an end. The church has been established at Pentecost, and is now developing, now spreading its influence. But it is time to really honestly look, in spite of the fact we're spreading, we've moved out into the heathen world. We've advanced against the kingdom of darkness. We have many, many evidences of the fruit of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel has been successful. Where there was nothing but idolatry before, now there is the worship of God. People have burned their books of magic. They've abandoned the great temple of Diana. 
They have turned from their wicked ways and they've turned to the Lord. There is evidence of great progress. Ah, but the time has come. The judgment needs to begin. And Christ who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks is going to pronounce his judgment as to the state of the church. And this is what he's doing. You see in the chapter 1 here of Revelation, when John, as we've noted, he hears the voice like the sound of a great trumpet and he turns to see where the voice has come from. And when he turned, what did he say? I saw seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now when we come to chapter 2, and now the seven golden candlesticks are to be identified, we read in verse 1, unto the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh, who walketh. He's not just sitting in the midst of the golden candlesticks. He's not just surrounded by the golden candlesticks. He walketh among them. Why is he doing this? Just so that they might be comforted in the knowledge he is present, he is not far away. He is walking among them for a reason, assessing their state and condition. Now the glorious Christ is ascended and high. He's not visibly walking amongst the churches in Asia. No one is going to send off a message from Ephesus or Samaria saying, when we assemble to worship God, lo and behold, the one who walked in the seas of Galilee, he came and he walked among us, and what a thrilling day it was. There would be nothing of that. He was invisible. But his presence was real, and he was walking among them. Now we have been, on Wednesday evenings, considering Job. And we went back there just for a moment, back to the accounting of Satan to uh, his creator, He's asked the question, chapter 1, and again in chapter 2, verse 6 of Job 1, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, I've been moving around. I've been busy. 
I haven't been having a holiday. I've been busy. And I've been going to and fro throughout the earth and walking up and down in it. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? And so on. And of course, we know that he had. He had been considering Job. He'd been obviously considering a lot more as well as Job, but at least he'd been considering Job. He'd been walking to and fro. He'd been going up and down and walking to and fro. And he'd been having a good look at Job's household and Job's family and Job's religious activities and exercises. And he didn't doubt the fact this man serves the Lord. I think I know the reason why he's serving the Lord, because God is good to him. But if God will change his attitude, we'll see then what will happen to Job. Now, the reason I mention this is because here is one not merely going to and fro throughout the earth or walking up and down throughout the earth, but he's concentrating particularly to walking among the churches. Walking among his people, (coughs) going to and fro among them. And as the Lord said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? The mighty God is able to say to the glorified Redeemer and head of the church, Hast thou considered the church in Ephesus? What do you think he would say? Oh no, I was ignoring them. The the glorious creator of the universe, the eternal father were to say to his son, you've been walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Hast thou considered my people, my church in Smyrna? he would be able to report very accurately, I have thoroughly examined them, and I know everything about them. I have turned every stone. I have probed into every life. I have examined every sermon, every prayer, every thought, every action, Every kind of service I know. Here is my judgment on the church in Smyrna. Now, Christ's knowledge of the church there is a practical knowledge. He knows everything, the end from the beginning. But it is also an experiential knowledge. He is walking with them in company with them. He walks in the midst of his redeemed people 
as a friend, as a king, as a priest, as a prophet, as a judge, but as a friend. The friend that sticketh closer than a brother, that's how he walks among them. And he knows, he knows all their circumstances to such an extent that he actually says, I know the blasphemy, verse 9, of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, we did refer to this, but look at the references to Satan in connection with these churches. You first of all have verse 9 here with regard to the church in Smyrna, reference to the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan. Verse 13, when we come to the church in Pergamos, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Oh, the church is there in Smyrna. Well, Satan's synagogue is there too. The church is in Pergamos. Satan's seat is in Pergamos. And again, in the same uh, verse 13, uh, referring to Antipas, the faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth, where Satan dwelleth, where he has his seat, where he dwelleth, it's almost as though it's the very center, Satan has taken over in uh, Pergamos and he's made Pergamos his very seat of authority from which he sends out his embassies, from which he issues his orders. He dwells there. Then you look again at chapter 2, the church in Thyatira, verse 24. I know uh, the state of things in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan. What? is to be understood of the depths of Satan. The depths of iniquity, the depths of deceit, the depths of his cruelty, the depths of his dishonesty and his deceit, the depths of Satan. You see the little kids running around at Halloween, as they call it, dressed up in little outfits, pretending they're the devil. And it's all a joke. The depths of Satan. Have you ever really thought about that? 
What's he capable of doing? To what depths will he go in his attempts to destroy the cause of the gospel? To what depths do you think he would go? You say, I never really thought of it. Well, it's time you did. To what depths can Satan go and will he go to destroy the church of Christ and to destroy a congregation of his people? He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. And Paul says we are not ignorant of his devices. We've learned something about his devices, the depths of Satan. Then you go again to chapter 3 and to the church in Philadelphia and in verse 9, what does the glorified Christ say? Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. Satan has another synagogue. Not in Smyrna, but in Philadelphia. My, wouldn't it be interesting if somehow or other we were able to attend a conference in the kingdom of darkness and the devil Satan, who's been going to and fro throughout the earth, going up and down among the sons of men. How is the evangelistic work of the kingdom of darkness progressing? Well, we've got a synagogue now in Smyrna. The next report, we've now established a synagogue in Philadelphia. The devil is as active and as busy establishing his kingdom and establishing his synagogues and the church is half asleep. Doesn't seem to recognize doesn't even believe the devil is an evangelist. Doesn't believe the kingdom of darkness operates as a kingdom. Why do I mention these things relating to Satan? Because of the connection with the seven churches in Asia. If he isn't important, if his influence isn't dangerous, if his power is insignificant, why would Christ even bother to mention him? You know why he says so much about him? Because wherever you get the church, the devil wants to get in there. And he wants to establish a foothold. And he wants to 
be active there. And he wants to advance his cause of darkness and ignorance. And here we have the synagogue of Satan in Samarna, a real threat to the cause of truth in Samarna. It's interesting when we go to Revelation, perhaps I mentioned this, but chapter 12, we have the full title of the devil. Who is he? Verse 9 of Revelation 12, the great dragon called the devil and Satan, which the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Now you will, of course, meet with this great dragon throughout the book of the Revelation. But he is also the serpent. Now you know as well as I do that while the dragon may be a kind of a mythical creature, even that mythical creature has distinguishing characteristics. And they're very different from that of the serpent. The great dragon, the old serpent, he's been around for a while. Uh, He's got a few gray hairs. Uh, He's the old serpent, the glorious Christ, the head of the church. He's the ancient of days. But the serpent is still the old serpent. And I tell you, he has a lot of experience. Young Christian, for your soul's good, you recognize that. And you go to Christ day by day and you tell him, I'm just a young Christian. And I have a lot to learn. And because I'm young and inexperienced, I sometimes stumble about. But oh, help me. Because the one that's going to oppose me and the one who's going to tempt me, he's got so much experience. He's the old serpent. And he has destroyed many a poor soul like me. Keep me. Protect me. Guide me. Lead me. The the great dragon, the old serpent called the devil, the devil and Satan. The devil and Satan, Satan the accuser, the devil the slanderer. Why, there's nothing very nice about him, is there? But the churches in Asia are told about him, and they need to be warned about him. Now here in the church in Smyrna, they are confronted with the fact that the 
devil, Satan, the accuser, has set up his synagogue in Smyrna. Now, last week, we mentioned uh, the uh, martyr, the first, uh, well, we don't know that he was the first, but uh, he was certainly the bishop of Smyrna, who was burned at the stake, the Roman proconsul, because he had certain regard for his age. He asked him to recant, and he would let him off, but he refused, and of course he was burned at the stake. How did he come to be at the stake? How did he come to be appearing before the Roman proconsul? Because of the synagogue of Satan. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. And the facts of history testify to the fact it was the Jews of the synagogue of Satan who actually betrayed Polycarp and accused him to the proconsul. It was they who actually gathered on their own Sabbath the material to burn him at the stake. The synagogue of Satan, the synagogue of the accuser. And out of this synagogue came the accusations. Now, what is the great king and head of the church? No. How does it affect him? His sympathy is uh, with uh, the saints here uh, faced with these difficulties. And it is interesting, he says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold the devil, the old serpent, Satan, the devil. He's got his foothold in Smyrna. He has his agents, and they are there to oppose the truth, to oppose the people of God to oppose the saints in Smyrna. But be thou faithful unto death. I know everything, not just the present, but I know what's going to happen in the future. I know what you're presently up against, but I also know what you're going to be against. And yet, he is walking in the midst. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't think, well, I know what's going on in Samaria. They're being tested, they're being tried. But I leave them to it. No, he is with them. As If you go with me over to the prophecy of Isaiah, in the 60, one of the most beautiful Portions in the Word of God. 
one of the most comforting for the afflicted people of God. Isaiah chapter 63, and we have the Lord talking to his people who were not altogether faithful to him. And he had to afflict them and he had to punish them, judge their sin and punish them for it. And yet, in verse 8 of Isaiah 63, he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. Ah, what a savior. So he was their savior. Is he your savior? Because if he is, look what then he says. In their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old in all their affliction. In it all. In all their affliction. Were they alone? Were they carrying the burden all alone? Were they suffering the pain all alone, deserted, abandoned? In all their affliction, he was afflicted. He passed through it with them. He journeyed the difficult road beside them. You think of that child of God. And you think no one knows what I'm going through. No one understands my difficulties. No one can appreciate how I feel. Ah, he's their savior. And because he is their savior, he's afflicted when they're afflicted. You remember when The Savior dealt with Saul of Tarsus. He was persecuting the church. Did did Jesus say to Saul of Tarsus, "I I am Jesus whose church you are persecuting. I am Jesus, the Savior, whose people you are afflicting and harassing. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. When you went into that home, Saul, and you wrecked that family, and you left those children weeping when you took their mother off into prison, when they were weeping, I was with them. When they were bowing down, holding Saul of Tarsus, pity us. Pity us. And there was no pity. I was there. I, your Savior, was there. I went through it with you. I felt it. You go to the uh, book of Judges, and uh, there in the chapter 10 is uh, another beautiful, encouraging portion Judges uh, chapter 10, uh, and again it refers to those people.
people, the Israelites of old, who were so fickle, they couldn't be trusted, they were so inconsistent, and yet, this is what we read regarding them. The Lord delivered these people again and again. He would raise up judges to deliver them, but they were never consistent. Verse 13, just for the sake of time, of Judges 10, Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones once preached on. The people weren't attending the services and the Lord's Day. They were going off to the beach and they were going off to their pleasures and whatever else. And then he told them, well, when you're in trouble, go back to the beach. Go back to your pleasures and look for them to deliver you. That's what the Lord was saying here. Well, you turned away from me. Well, 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 turn to the gods you've been serving, that you've been devoting yourselves to. And the children of Israel, verse 15, said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. What a blessed repentance this is. What a blessed state. When all rebellion is gone and when there's a willingness, Lord, I have sinned. Do with me as you will. I have sinned against thee. Do as it pleases thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And listen to this. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. His soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. What misery? Well, they sinned against God. They brought his hand in affliction upon them. And their misery was because of their sin. And yet even that misery that they so deserved, that they brought upon themselves, he was grieved over it. It pained him. Maybe, child of God, you can look back in your own experience, you can remember days of misery. Miserable days. You were not happy in your own soul. You were grieved with God. You were grieved with your providences. You were grieved with your parents, people of God. Things were not going well. And deep down you were of a mind, the Lord is dealing with me, and perhaps you were, he's not very kind to me. And it was a difficult time. And you were hostile, maybe, to God. 
Why is he treating me like this? Why is he dealing with me like this? Ah, my friend, do we really know the heart of God? Do we really know the sympathetic, compassionate, loving heart of God? He was grieved when this people were suffering because of their own sins. Grieved him in his heart. My dear friend, how can sinners reject such a Savior, such a God, with such a heart? When these people had no heart for him, he had a heart for them. And this is the one who's examining the church in Smyrna. And they're passing through affliction and trial. And he's walking in the midst with them. I'm passing through it with you. I'm walking alongside of you. I'm sharing the burden. Your pain is my pain. Your afflictions are my afflictions. In all your afflictions, I am afflicted. Oh, if we could, if only we could get into the heart of God, what a difference it would make so often to us. But time is gone. We must leave it there. May the Lord bless to us his word. Let us pray. Most holy And eternal God, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for the comfort in thy word as well as the censoring and all the warnings that are issued to thy church, to thy people. Oh, we bless thee for the information. The great king and head of the church is pleased to give to his people, to his church, that that church might be strong and stable and faithful and true. Oh, bless thy word to us. May we as a congregation be found faithful in our day and generation. Bless thy truth, pardon us, accept us for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.